Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary, Episode 4, Powers, Part 2. I have so many questions. Then, of course, there's the question on everyone's mind. Then I'll ask the obvious question. Start asking questions. You're the answer, son. Welcome to Man of Steel Answers Insight Commentary. I'm your Man of Steel apologist, Dr. Awkward. I cover a mosaic of topics for fans who love discussing the Man of Steel and the DC Cinematic Universe. Together, we'll endeavor to answer the questions, criticisms, and controversies raised by Man of Steel as we eagerly anticipate the DC Cinematic Universe. In this episode, we cover Kryptonian powers in Man of Steel and how they worked in the film. This is the second in a three-part series. In today's episode, we'll discuss heat vision, super strength, and more. Last episode, we talked about the things that set Kal-El apart, like being the first natural-born Kryptonian or having the Codex bonded to him. We also covered super hearing and x-ray vision. So if you haven't already listened to those episodes, go back and check them out, as all three parts of this series were recorded together and reference each other. This podcast dives deep into Man of Steel to answer the critics and the confused. This show is not meant to convert anybody, but to celebrate a film that leaves a lot of wonderful room for interpretation and investigation. Reasonable minds will differ, but this is a show for the fans who loved Man of Steel and who love to chew their food. We'll start with diegetic analysis for what happened in the film, then analyze the creative decisions that took place outside the film. For now, we're doing general topic episodes like this one. This is not going to be your typical rundown of superpowers. If you've seen the science of Superman or things like that, we're going to have a little bit of that, but this is going to be a lot of just crazy fan theory. The approach we take on these things is how can we rationalize the powers to come to an understanding of the mechanics behind them? Not in order to come to a physical reality of how they may occur, that ship has sailed, but rather to see what guided the creation of the film and how these may predict or project the use of Superman's powers into the future. That's part of the joy that I have in this podcast is trying to dissect things, pull it apart, challenge it with a bunch of different theories, and see if we can't find out where the moving pieces are, where the underlying assumptions are, and maybe come up with a coherent or cohesive theory on how everything works. No promises, because after all, at the end of the day, it is a flying man with physics-defying abilities, but it's fun to try. And if you think it's fun too, stick around and listen to the podcast. You're the answer, son. So the third in our triumvirate of powers that we see from the elementary school scene is number seven, heat vision. We all recall that Clark sequesters himself in a utility closet. He locks the door behind him. And when the teacher tries to fumble with the knob, he invisibly heats the knob such that she withdraws her hand because it's become hot. That makes me happy because that means that he can use his powers potentially in a discreet way with invisible beams that may not necessarily be detectable by those around him. And that gives way to some of the things that we can see in maybe the more traditional comics. One of my favorite scenes in All-Star is when Clark is discreetly rescuing people from disaster without their knowledge and heat vision being a big part of that. It's exciting that even within the movie, where typically we see beams being fired at every turn, there are also exceptions that gives you a little more ability or wiggle room to see other portrayals or techniques used in future films. 
So the next time that we see him use his heat vision is to burn a wide beam in a tunnel. So again, that's showing the versatility of the power before he's just remotely heating a doorknob without any beams. And the next time you see he's able to carve this wide beam or this wide shaft to create a tunnel that he can walk through. Now, to be fair, we don't actually see exactly how he carves the, the tunnel. It's sort of presumed that he uses a wide beam and just walks forward. But it's possible that he just kept making concentric circles or a spiral with his eyes. And that's the way he dug the tunnel rather than just a, a wide beam. But a wide beam would be something that's kind of exciting. It's, it's again, back to that sort of traditional comic, something where Superman has the ability to use his heat vision in a variety of ways and not just as, you know, discrete lasers. Another two quick neat things that we see from the tunnel scene and that repeat themselves throughout the film is one, we see that it causes this veiny effect to appear on his eyes. So that may counter or go against the ability to use the powers discreetly. Superman might have to, at least with more powerful beams, try to, you know, hide his own face. But with weaker beams, you know, maybe only his eyes light up just a little bit, turn a little bit red. We don't know. Apparently, that's part of the San Diego Comic-Con teaser footage, that sort of now iconic idea of an angered Superman with glowing red eyes, right? And so the effect here is even more enhanced by the sort of the, the veiny effect, the lit up inflamed veins that spread out from the eyes in the Man of Steel universe. The other thing that we see is that after a intense or long or strong blast of heat vision, Kryptonians have to sort of shake it off. You see Clark sort of shake his head as if he's a little bit dizzy or a little bit disoriented after completing the tunnel. You also see him do that when he slags the steel beam in an instant and when Zod first unleashes his heat vision. So there's a brief sort of, for lack of a better term, refractory period when they unleash this strong energy from their eyes. And that also gives us a sort of a constraint on how the power might work in the future. So it's not just something that they can effortlessly put forth and just continually pour on and just keep using and abusing. Instead, it disorients them to do that continuously. And, and therefore, it gives time for, you know, fight choreography, it gives time for reaction or counteraction. And it's just a nice little window where you stay true to Superman being Superman, but without just making it so overwhelmingly difficult to write because you've written you've written out all the space that would prevent Superman from just unleashing this heat vision perpetually until all his enemies are incinerated, something to that effect, right? Okay, so some of the other things that we see, we see him use it with surgical precision to cauterize a wound. We see that it's the only thing that Superman can bring forward that can actually damage Kryptonian armor besides a whole torrent of his punches just to slightly damage a helmet. His heat vision actually was able to reliably damage the Kryptonian armor just a little bit quicker. It was able to damage the Kryptonian scout ship, although we don't really have any sort of durability findings or feats for the scout ship. But there you have it. It is able to damage that. Zod's heat vision was able to bring about the collapse of an entire building. So that suggests that the beam, while it damaged the room that they were in, just kept going forward and on and on and on throughout the whole building till all the structural supports and everything were, were, were quite damaged. So that, although we don't see it explicitly, 
suggests that the range of heat vision is, is quite significant, at least enough to make an entire building collapse. As mentioned before, it's able to slag an entire steel beam in an instant. It, it seems like a small thing compared to everything else we're talking about, but that amount of energy dumped in a single instant is quite significant. Unfortunately, I left my notes at home on, on the math on this, but uh, uh, I, I'll try to either post it in the show notes or bring it up in a future blog post. And the final thing is, it doesn't necessarily, as far as we can tell, doesn't necessarily, at least for an untrained Kryptonian, follow the pupils. And this is a common protest with the with with the finale and Zod using that sustained beam to put the family into a um, a seeming death trap. A lot of critics will say, why didn't he just turn his eyes? Why didn't he widen the beam? Why didn't he do this or do that? And it may be just as simple as Zod didn't know how. It may be more complex in saying no Kryptonian can do that. We don't know explicitly that Superman can widen the beam. We don't know explicitly that Superman can make the beam follow his pupils rather than just the straight view of his eyes. But those also may have been things that came with training. You know, Superman's been on Earth for 33 years and has dealt with these powers for at least 24 years. So it's nothing compared to the amount of experience that Zod has with these specific powers. Now, the mechanics of the heat vision are a little more complex to describe. It's probably not radiant heat. The magnitude and the degree of heat that's coming off there's just no way that you could confine that to sort of a narrow and specific beam. Uh, we're talking about sort of that energy dump that comes from the uh, slagging of the iron beam. Just being around that or near that would, you know, the radiant heat, heat is is uh, radiant, right? It comes off the source. It would come off the beam and there would be so much uh, surrounding or collateral sort of damage from something like that. Instead, his beams tend to be some more sort of discrete laser-like kind of application. So the, the heat stays within the beam itself. What is more tricky is trying to figure out how he's able to confine it either to a beam or if he is able to spread it, why the spread isn't always like a cone as opposed to, you know, sort of a wide, narrow, flat beam. Uh, we don't know how he's able to do either of those things. Uh, but those things only appear in the traditional comics. So things, those things have not appeared in the movie universe so far. And based on the dealing or the, the way that they've dealt with the power so far, I anticipate that they'll maintain those uses. So sort of a remote heating ability, like we saw with the young Clark, sort of a beam, a discrete beam ability, as we see throughout most of the movie. And then maybe we'll get that wide beam effect that we saw with the tunnel again, where it's an entire sphere of heat vision. But I don't think we'll necessarily get any more uh, I don't think we'll get sort of that wide beam blast that you may recall from Superman Returns, where Superman uses his power to melt falling glass shards and debris. A spread like that, I don't know that you can necessarily or easily sort of scientifically explain that. And again, these powers are whack. 
They're not scientific. They are just comic book magic. But the more you confine or constrain yourself to sort of realistic grounding or physical principles, the more you can communicate to your audience that this is something that's plausible and possible and real. And that sort of added dimension to Heat Vision is something I appreciate, something that they carried through the entire film. Now, I have a little crazy theory, and I'll just sort of float it here, and I'll let you guys discuss it in the forums and tear it apart or whatever you want. But my crazy theory here is that the reason Heat Vision is specifically able to injure Kryptonians is because it is, in some aspect or some part of it, something like red solar radiation. It isn't the radiant heat that is damaging them. Uh, like I said before, if you're dumping that much heat into an object, there would just be all this spillover and spill off that would just be of such incredible magnitude. Because these are guys that, at least we, we don't know it in this movie, but maybe traditionally Superman's able to sort of bathe in the sun. He's able to survive lightning bolts and sit in a volcano or something like that, right? So the heat from the heat vision isn't enough to cause the damage. But maybe... Maybe it's because it's able to sort of push aside Kryptonian vulnerability. And this is particularly relevant in sort of that classic example or that classic question of the marketing campaign that accompanied the launch of Man of Steel, which was the Gillette campaign for how does the Man of Steel shave? How does Superman shave? And we had all sorts of theories posited by all sorts of geeks, nerds, and pop culture figures. But obviously, comic book fans... Superman traditionalists like ourselves know the classic way that Superman shaves. And that's by reflecting reflecting his heat vision off of some device or machine or object able to reflect his heat vision. And again, that's another crazy characteristic of heat vision to begin with, because it, it, it isn't lasers, right? It, it's actually supposed to be heat and heat doesn't uh, bounce discreetly off of objects, right? So uh, it does bounce. It does, you can radiate heat and you can reflect heat, but to reflect it with precision or, um, you know, laser-like precision, I guess is the most accurate phrase, belies something that isn't heat, right? So it's not actually heat vision in that case. Then it's more something like laser vision. I'm sorry, I'm getting off track on semantics. The gist is he bounces the heat vision back towards his chin and singes off the hairs. Now, I've, I understand this tradition, and I'm okay with it to the extent that it's tradition. I'm not comfortable with it because of a couple of those physical reasons I just explained. Heat doesn't quite bounce, and would you always be able to get the angle that you want to get? But sort of just an ancillary problem that I've ever always had with it is that his bathroom should stink of burning hair. And the particulate matter coming off of that burning hair would be potentially super particulate, right? So it would be throwing these dangerous uh, abestus-like particles into the air for Lois to breathe in every morning. So perhaps I'm being a little hyper-rational there, a little over-realistic. So that's, that's kind of absurdist. Let's not worry about that. My point is that the amount of heat that it would take to actually damage Superman, damage Superman to the extent that he could lose hair or um, flesh or, you know, cellular material, at least traditionally in the comics, would be so freaking high that he'd be radiating, pouring off heat 
to the point that he would be setting his apartment on fire, you know, and, and, and damaging the whole facility. I mean, for example, he's able to run through the sun to clean his cape, but not singe his hair, right? He doesn't, he flies through the sun and he doesn't come off, he doesn't come out bald as a child. His eyebrows burned off, his head scalped. So that means that his hair in the traditional comics can sustain those kinds of extraordinary heat. And so that would mean that his, the heat that's bouncing off his eyes off of this mirror is more powerful than the sun, right? And so that's why I'm saying this ridiculous amount of heat is probably not the way, it's not the thing that's overcoming his powers in order to damage his hair. Rather, we know that Kryptonians are sensitive to or susceptible to different kinds of radiation. At least traditionally they are. Again, Man of Steel kryptonite hasn't been introduced yet, but at a minimum, we know that the radiation of the yellow sun, and I know that's also junk science too, but that's one that I'm, I'm willing to cling to and, 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 and accept. But uh, that's another episode. We'll talk about that in the future. But the yellow solar radiation affects them in a way that it gives them strength, right? We know that the radiation coming off of a radioactive rock, a green rock from their planet, causes their powers to go away and even lethal effects to them. And then we know that the red solar radiation saps them of their powers and makes them essentially mere mortals. So if his heat vision is a metabolized form of yellow sun radiation, uh, and perhaps closer to the spectrum of something like red sun radiation, but not necessarily red sun radiation itself, because if it was that far, then then he'd be shooting beams into his own head and, and killing himself, but rather something along that spectrum so that it just, it just nudges back and dials back his invulnerability a little bit. Then in dialing back his invulnerability, now you have hair follicles, which are more susceptible to the heat of the heat vision and suddenly being incinerated. So that's my crazy theory. I'm sorry I spent so much time ranting and raving about it. Feel free to tear it apart in the comments or uh, talk about it on the forums. Maybe uh, we can explore a little bit more about Superman's heat vision and, and get down to the nitty gritty and figure out how it's going to work in the future films. Let's move on to the next power. And I think the next one is true marquee power. It's, it's, the, it's the core essence of Superman. Even from action one, this is the power that he has that everybody wants. It's super strength, number eight. So super strength is the next power that we see in the chronology of Clark. We see Clark rescue the school bus. And obviously that's beyond the physical abilities of a normal human being. This is the marquee power of Superman. Super strength is probably second only to flight as the marquee ability, the ability that we most identify with Superman. That may be invulnerability. Somewhere around there, well, maybe that's a separate discussion. We can rank the powers of Superman, see which ones we most identify. But for my money, it's somewhere between flight and strength, and I tend towards strength. I'm particularly excited by how strength was handled in the film. And the reason for that is I feel like they really took a careful physical approach to super strength. They really took a lot of effort to portray it in a fashion that is grounded and realistic. One of the biggest sort of gaffes, I would say, or perhaps you could call it a trope, comes with super strength is individuals lifting objects 
that don't have the structural integrity to support lifting from a single individual point, as is exhibited in traditional super strength feats. So for example, if you were to try to lift a sinking boat the size of a cargo carrier on a single little point the size of of a human. That invulnerable, super strong human would just punch through the ship like a needle through tinfoil because the ship was built to be supported, to be cradled from all directions with equal pressure by the force of buoyancy of water. It was not developed in order to take the stress or strain of a single point bearing all the weight of the carrier ship. So that's the reality. But nonetheless, iconically, We anticipate and expect and see superheroes, characters with super strength, routinely pick, maneuver, and push objects that just don't have that level of structural integrity to receive that kind of strength, right? And the movie is very careful to avoid showing those things which might challenge that perception but still give us the goods. So for example, we have Namek throwing the train engine. Now I challenge you to say that maybe there there probably isn't a point on a train engine that could survive the stresses of a throw like that. Maybe the linkage, I don't know, I'm not a train expert, but I imagine that a train is similar to the boat example developed to take strains throughout evenly with normal acceleration, not a sudden jerking type throw at a certain structural point. So they're careful not to show us the train being thrown, but we still get to see the train get thrown through the air. Similarly, we get to see the the harassing truck driver, his truck gets decimated in a humorous fashion but we don't actually see how that comes about because I don't know that there's a elegant or proper or realistic way that you could actually communicate that on screen on how that could actually happen. That is one of those kind of possible plot holes that I'd love to unravel in our community. And if you guys would uh, come onto the forum and discuss how Superman could pull that off, how Clark could have pulled that off, that would be a weight off my mind <laughs> uh, to, to, to come up with apologetics for that. I'd, lo- uh, I'd love to get into that. But that's another show. In the chronology of Clark, we have him move the bus We have him do the oil rig rescue. And there again, you see the physicality and the the correct physics sort of being translated into the film again. Just like the objects being held up don't necessarily have the structural integrity to maintain super strength, the ground supporting the individual often will not have the structural integrity necessary. So for example, if a strong man, a super strong man were to lift up a tank that tank normally supports its weight across a wide treaded base. And so spreading its force across that area, it's able to stay above the ground. But if you concentrate all that force onto just a man's two feet, then suddenly it's like a pin on top of that tinfoil again, and it will punch down and through and into the ground. So in the oil rig scene, we see Superman trying to hold up that giant, massive piece of metal, and quite reasonably, the ground against him starts to bow and bend and eventually give way. But he is able to contribute enough so that the uh, helicopter is able to get away, and it is a successful rescue. But it's wonderful that the filmmakers right up front, this is one of the first action scenes we see in the film, gives us the realistic portrayal of these powers in a way that's really grounded and free from tropes, 
right? It'd be so easy for him to just stand there and hold it up and to have no issues with the ground. And audiences would kind of accept that because that's what we've come to expect in terms of these superhero tropes. But instead, the creators said, no, we're going to put Superman in the real world and still show that he has, you know, his powers are still relevant and still interesting, even if he has to deal with real world physics outside of his powers. In other words, his powers help him personally suspend physics, but it doesn't suspend physics for the world around him. Right. And that, that's one of the reasons I, I just really love the portrayal of superpowers in Man of Steel, especially as, as far as it goes with super strength. Now, everything that I'm talking about is not new territory, though. Right. Especially with the Superman reboot in, in 86 with John Byrne and the title Man of Steel. There was a move to try to figure out how Superman can maintain these tropes and how he can do these traditional feats that people are expecting from Superman. And one of the answers they came with was the innovation of tactile telekinesis. The idea was that anything that Superman is touching, he's extending a field of support to give that object the structural integrity necessary or to extend out his strength, I guess so that it's evenly distributed across the object in a fashion that doesn't overcome the object's structural integrity. And they called it tactile telekinesis to distinguish it from the traditional sort of X-Men ability, which is just telekinesis, the manipulation of things with just your mind and not needing touch, because touch is integral to the traditional portrayal of how Superman manipulates objects. Right? He doesn't just lift things with his mind. At least that's not how we think of it. He has to sort of touch it and move it with his body. So tactile telekinesis, they opened the door for that. And uh, we'll definitely talk about that later in our catch-all segment right at the end. But one more thing I just want to talk about is the mechanics of super strength and how it's not as physically broken as necessarily comes to mind automatically. Okay, so how does super strength work? I mean, really, how does it work? We're talking about moving objects well beyond what a normal mortal man can do. And see, the thing about this is physics nowadays is high school. It's grade school. It's much more intuitive, I believe, in this day and age than 75 years ago when Superman debuted. So I think right now there's a much more fundamental universal understanding that force equals mass times acceleration. And we can see how much strength is exerted by measuring the mass of the object and its acceleration. That's Newton's second law of motion. But the equation is becomes unbalanced by Superman. He's generating that force, but he's not making up the difference by being super massive or accelerating super fast to compensate. It typically looks more like Superman is behaving like a super massive object, but we know for a fact that he's not super massive. And personally, I I hate that particular rationalization for how Superman's powers work. I'm very glad that when Jor-El enumerates the things that he's benefited from in this uh, environment, he doesn't say, and you are super dense or you're super massive. Because a lot of times, at least in the comic books, Superman's unconscious or he's just trying to travel by normal means. And those kind of, say, elevator or a bike or just being knocked out and being carried by normal human beings, those things wouldn't be possible if he was super heavy or super dense. So we know that he's not super dense, but we also can see by his his actions and his behaviors that he's not super accelerating. 
right? He's typically moving with the same sort of speed or you know acceleration as the object that he's trying to push or move or manipulate. That being the case, where does the extra vector for force arise from? Where is that difference being made up from? Well, the thing is, Superman already has a power that allows him to assign arbitrary force vectors to his own person. And that, that power is essentially flight. Thus, his super strength is the product of or in tandem with his flight power. A 92 kilogram mass punching is only going to be able to generate so much force. And, and so the difference is made up by this sort of flight force strength vector rather than acceleration. It's literally him willing extra force into his pushes, into his punches, into everything that he does. And so he gets more out of it than what is his personal mass or what the actual acceleration of his body is. And we'll talk more about that again in the speed section and in the in the um, flight section that's coming up. But just sort of intuit that as saying that Superman can behave like a normal human being, can punch like a human being, he can run like a human being, but then he gets more value out of it. He gets impossible value out of it. And that impossible value is made up uh, with his that sort of flight ability. And just real quick, that's kind of intuitive because when he flies, we generally anticipate that Superman's able to lift as much as he can while he's flying as he is while on the ground. We generally don't make those two different powers, like he's exerting more force when he's pushing against or on the ground than he is if he's pushing uh, against something in space or while flying right? So we sort of already intuited that Superman is just able to will this extra force vector into existence. And that's just sort of a, a slight dissection of how his powers works, but it's one that is consistent with how Superman has been portrayed in the past and how I anticipate he'll continue to be portrayed through the Batman films. So he's not going to have to make up for his lack of mass with speed at every instant. And I know I have physicists screaming into their iPods right now saying, uh, you said speed. No, you're right. I meant acceleration. I apologize. But you understand what I'm saying. He's not going to make up for it with acceleration and he's not going to become super massive. Rather, it's just this extra force vector, this phantom force vector that comes out of his will and probably comes out of one of the other abilities that we'll talk about a little bit later. Okay, so then... The next implied power, I think I might have put this in the wrong spot, is number nine, holding breath. And generally, it, it just, what I'm trying to say is the ability to have his powers without having to breathe. And I think the reason I put it here was, I think at the time I was thinking that the duration of the busk rescue, the amount of force, how heavy an individual would be breathing in order to exert all that force, in order to push the bus, in order to dive back and rescue Pete, all of those kind of things would require much greater respiration than what was exhibited. And that limited respiration, again, rears its head twice in the oil rig scene, maybe three times if you consider the amount of exertion that he had to take to swim over to there, to climb the rig, and all that kind of stuff. He wasn't breathing heavily, as far as we could tell. And then when he rescued the oil rig people, he was walking through poisonous air. I mean, it's essentially superheated air with all these burning, noxious toxins in it. That is not Earth's environment right? That is not your everyday Sunday stroll through Smallville. 
that kind of atmosphere is not Earth's atmosphere. Yet, nonetheless, he was able to walk through it. He was able to exhibit his durability, exhibit his strength, and open the door for the men trapped inside. And they recognized that it wasn't a Earth atmosphere because one of the lines that they say right before he opens the uh, opens the doors is something to the effect of, this is the last of the oxygen. So they knew that they were going to be in respiratory distress soon because of the environment being non-Earth atmosphere. This is all important later. It may, you know, you might be wondering why I keep pounding on this aspect. Uh, but, but what I'm trying to emphasize is that Clark and Superman do not need Earth's atmosphere to have their strength, right? Or to have all of his abilities. So being in a oil rig fire is not an Earth atmosphere, okay? The other time is when he's floating there in the water where any other individual probably would have drowned, right? Because you need to, you need to breathe. And if you stay underwater for an entire dream sequence and just float there, you are not breathing. So, or at least you're not breathing oxygen by traditional means. So that is another non-Earth atmosphere situation where Superman is still exhibiting his powers, his durability, his his resistance or adaptability. Um, now, another argument is that he has all of the atmosphere just stored within him during this time. And that's something we can address in the uh, we can address later or in the future, um, but uh, I don't think that's necessarily the case because well let let's just get into it. So the other the other common example of Superman being able to have his powers without being in Earth atmosphere or Earth environment or optimal Earth environment is flying into space, and he does this three times throughout the film. He does it the first time he gains the ability to fly. He does it when flying to rescue Lois away from the ship. And he does it a third time when fighting Zod. So each of these times, he's traveling all the way from ground level to the stratosphere and beyond and into the vacuum of space. And each of these times, he's still able to have his flight. He's still able to have his durability, his strength, his powers. That whole spectrum of environments is not Earth atmosphere right? Vacuum certainly isn't, and hyper high altitude certainly isn't. So clearly having sort of this ideal sea level kind of atmosphere is not necessary to the sustenance of Superman's powers, at least over a period. We don't know if he needs to store it in to his being ahead of time, or if he needs to hold his breath during these events. I would be inclined to say, no, he doesn't actually have to hold his breath because of the examples that we see, particularly the ones where he's flying up and down between ground and space. But again, that is not a factor or a requirement to having his powers. And then one more sort of collateral example of him not having to breathe or respire is just the speed at which he travels. And again, this is sort of, again, fan theory, and and there's reasons to discount it that we will talk about. But when you travel at extraordinary speeds, when you go very quickly, there's a difference in air pressure outside your body and a difference of air pressure within your body. And so that difference in air pressure rips the air from your lungs, right? You can't breathe. You can't intake any air because the way you intake is a contraction of your diaphragm and it causes a change in air pressure. And that's how you suck air into your lungs, right? But traveling at extraordinary speeds causes such a differential that that small little change in volume of air between your diaphragm 
isn't going to overcome that extraordinary force. So essentially, if we're working with a purely physical object and, and there's no magic involved and no Kryptonian shenanigans or, or whatnot, a being that requires breath traveling at those extraordinary speeds would have the breath sucked right out of them. And nonetheless, Superman is able to proceed at those speeds. So I know that it's sort of a theory on top of a theory on top of a theory to get there, but that's an, another little piece of support suggesting that Superman does not need to breathe Earth atmosphere to use his powers. I know I've gotten really pedantic about it, but it's important, and we'll see why as we uh, roll up on the next power. So I think the next power is that durability, that invulnerability, that man of steelness. It's number 10, invincibility or durability. So following the chronology of Clark, the next power that comes up is durability, number 10. And I put it here because in the bullying scene, Clark says, you know they can't, in response to Pa Kent asking whether they hurt him. So that implies at that point, he knows that he has at least enough durability to not be injured by bullies. Arguably, I could have put it up front towards the beginning because Jorel responded back to Lara, you know, they'll kill him. And he says, how? But the thing is, I don't know if the timing meant, you know, even as an infant, he would have been bulletproof, right? And the other thing is, you have to talk, you have to think about how he would discover this invulnerability. Yes, kids get bumps, bruises, cuts, and, and they stub their toes and all that kind of thing. But a lot of people go through their entire life without experiencing any serious physical trauma. You can, you can go your entire life without breaking your arm. You can go your entire life without getting shot by a bullet. So how do you test those limits in a reasonable, realistic, and safe way? It's quite probable that Clark did not discover just how durable or invulnerable he was until the age of 14, when you are a little bit more independent. You are taking some more risks and you are more susceptible to uh, experiencing injuries and realizing that you aren't being injured. So that's the reason I, I put it there at 14 as opposed to right up front. But it is ambiguous. We don't ultimately know. It's probably the most demonstrated ability in the film. We see it again in the oil rig scene. Obviously, he survives the flame and the heat of the flame. He survives the collapse of the entire facility. He survives alleged drowning. <laughs> he survives the temperatures and the hyperthermia or whatever that would be involved with swimming back to shore, to walking around shirtless. Like I mentioned with Super Strength Above, I was very pleased at how they portrayed it in a very realistic manner. I think a lot of people confuse durability and invincibility with sort of this impossible infinite momentum principle. They think if you're durable, that means you should be able to stand and take any blow without having to move. But that's not necessarily true. Rather, their mass doesn't change just because they're durable. So for example, they can be knocked around by A-10 fire or by getting hit with vehicles or whatever. And, and this is a plausible, more reasonable way to approach durability than to make them super massive or having infinite momentum because it allows them to interact with society and reality in a practical, reasonable manner. He can get on a bike and ride it. He can get in an elevator and have it move him. The fact that he's able to be transported is a statement about his mass and his momentum, not about his durability. He can get kicked around and pushed around and moved 
it doesn't mean that he's not durable or not surviving it. And I think throughout the film, as far as I can tell, blood is never drawn, skin is never broken, bruise is never raised. So he is quite durable considering how much they went through in that film, right? He's extraordinarily durable. And I think that's good because at a minimum, you need that sort of invulnerability to be Superman. The strength is great. The strength is important. But that invulnerability allows you to sort of be in the fray, to, to be in the story. And it's interesting, like we talked about earlier with that Unbreakable movie, that was sort of the one trait that made him a superhero. Not so much the super strength, not so much any of these other powers that I've been talking about so far. We're up to number 10. Just the durability was enough to push that character into being, you know, unbreakable, uh, being a superhero. So it, it is a definitive power. We just want to briefly recover or, or, or go back over a topic that I think we raised in the first episode when we were talking about Kryptonian armor and how durable it was. In the same vein, we didn't talk about it, but it's the same kind of topic, whether Superman's suit is invulnerable and super durable or whether it is Superman lending to it the invulnerability. And again, we sort of raised that old 1986 John Byrne Man of Steel concept of the several centimeters or millimeters of bioelectric invulnerability force field coming off of Superman and making his costume invulnerable. And it's a very sort of practical approach. It, it, it makes all the magic come out of the Kryptonian and their field and their abilities, as opposed to having to rely on sort of material science, right? And I can understand the appeal of that. I think that is an elegant approach. But I also think we came to the conclusion that it ultimately wasn't the bioelectric field kind of theory. Instead, it was the durability and the strength of the materials and the costume. And the reason we came to that conclusion was essentially two examples. One was that Superman was ultimately able to damage the Kryptonian helmets, which presumably would have been under that same invulnerable bioelectric shield or field, so they shouldn't have been damaged. And then we sort of jokingly also talked about, to the delight of much of the audience that sort of is inclined that way, that Clark's shirt and pants were in tatters and, and, and off his body after the oil rig fire, right? So if he emanates an invulnerable field to prevent inconvenient nudity, then he wouldn't have been shirtless. He would, his pants wouldn't have been in tatters. His clothing would have been perfectly intact because of that field. Uh, the other argument uh, I guess you could use as a counter argument is that the latter, the baggy clothing and the uh, oversized shirt didn't cling closely enough to his body to uh, take the benefit of his bioelectric field. Right. So that, I guess that is a county theory to the tatters argument, but I don't think it works with the armor then because the armor is still quite bulky and jutting and coming out of the sort of range of the bioelectric field. And nonetheless, it still exhibited this extraordinary durability and strength. So, but there's some wiggle room there to reconcile it and give us an alternative theory in the end. Two more things about durability. Uh, one is that we see that Physical durability does not necessarily implicate psychic durability. So, for example, both Zod and Feora were taken out of the battle because of overwhelmed senses. Feora experienced auditory unconsciousness, right? So the trauma to her mind or her senses was enough to cause her mind to shut down, to go into unconsciousness. But nonetheless, like we talked about with auditory focus before... Certainly Superman was in a battle 
with extraordinarily loud sounds, explosions, intense sensations, and nonetheless didn't suffer the same unconsciousness. So it is something that is adaptable and can be overcome, but it is also a potential and temporary vulnerability as Zod characterized it. The other thing, of course, is the final feat of their strength overcoming their durability. And that's, of course, Superman being able to kill Zod, right? The next snap demonstrates that Kryptonian strength is stronger than Kryptonian durability, at least insofar as Zod was concerned. Uh, there is a possibility, a theory, an argument that Zod and the other Kryptonians were not as strong or as durable as Clark was. That would be based on the fact that they had not absorbed as much solar radiation as Clark did. So perhaps they were weaker or scaled to a different strength. We don't really know. I don't think that's what the movie was trying to convey to us, but it is a theory. In the alternative, if they are as strong as Clark is, if they are as strong as Superman is, then that shows a potential upper limit to Superman's invulnerability. So in other words, if you can exert as much strength on that exact same kind of weakness, then in theory, you can take Superman out physically, right? Now, I don't know how practical that is. And again, you have to realize that that was in that moment in time with a rookie Superman. So just as Superman's abilities scaled and were uncovered and revealed throughout the movie. For all we know, Superman can take his durability and his invulnerability to the next level or a higher level. That seems counterintuitive because you'd say, no, they objectively should be what they are. But we'll talk about that a little bit later. Because for example, when we're talking about super strength, super strength is an extra force vector that is just sort of willed into existence. Right, And in order to exert that much torque onto Superman, in order to exploit that vulnerability, you have to overcome the strength of his neck, the will, the force that he's exerting into his own neck for it to not turn. Right, So as Superman develops in his powers, develops in his focus, develops in his strength, he may be able to essentially will more strength into his neck to resist the torquing force and in such a way increase his durability beyond the threshold that we saw in his battle against Zod. So it's all theoretical, but I'm just saying don't be surprised if that technique doesn't necessarily work in the future or if there's a plausible explanation for why it doesn't work because Superman's strength can scale and develop and grow stronger as he goes on. As Jor-El says to him, keep testing your limits. So he put Zod to his limit, but that was Zod's limit at the time as a super-powered rookie, having only been using those powers to that extent literally only for minutes. Contrast that to a Superman who is now free to and has cause to develop and continually push his limits and his powers. You can imagine that durability going up higher and higher and higher, along with the strength and the other powers that are perhaps more will-based, more conscious-based than just a sort of hard, fixed, permanent stat. Okay. Thanks so much for listening. I love discussing this stuff. And if you've been sticking with me for this whole thing, hopefully you do too. I'm genuinely grateful to each and every one of you who listen and hope you'll join my community at manofsteelanswers.com. That way, if you have any questions that you want answered or insights you want to share, 
or commentary to make, you can post in our forums for all your like-minded apologists to see. Or you can email me at manofsteelanswers.com and maybe I'll address your question on the air. If you like what you heard, please review the show on iTunes and subscribe. This is Dr. Awkward, your Man of Steel apologist, signing off, and see you next time. You're the answer, son.